All right. How's everybody doing? Awesome. Well, welcome and uh, greetings. If this is your first time or first couple times here, and I, I know that I say, I write that at the top of my notes because I want people to feel welcome. We want people to feel welcome. And uh, we also say with a certain amount of regularity that um, we don't believe that you're here by accident. Uh, <clears throat> not at all. We believe that God uh, draws people and uh, he draws them uh, to himself. He draws them into fellowship, whether that's here or, or uh, any, um, any church. And so um, we're just excited if you're new that you're here with us. And, and uh, what a great, Dave was right, what a, a great night of worship in the city park. Like uh, that, was, um, that was really something. And um, just really appreciate everybody's hard work, hard work in the thing. And, and uh, Tegan has kind of masterminded the idea and been there uh, at every turn, her and Stephen, to help out. Um, Jonathan really was the uh, brains behind all the electronics. And we made a few upgrades between the first one and the second one. And I think it made a significant difference. Gary Calvert, Brock, uh, Austin, Lauren, everybody that was involved Everybody that helped out, it was just a, a super evening. And um, I, was thinking, uh, I was thinking Friday about that, and uh, I was thinking about the idea of Daniel from several weeks ago. We talked about Daniel and how uh, Daniel defied the king's orders, and he purposefully went and prayed with his window open so that everybody could see him pray. Like he wasn't hiding what, who, he was, who his allegiance were to. He wasn't hiding who he was praying to. He wasn't hiding who he's worshiping to. And, 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 and the church, especially I think the church here in America, has made it kind of easy over the decades to just do that here. Just within these walls. We've made it easy. Uh, we've, we, we've made it less public and more private. And, and I'm not sure that that's the biblical model at all. Like if you look at the apostles, man, they were just out preaching in the streets you know, and if the folks didn't like it, they started stoning them and, you know, and they got up and went again. Like that was the pattern, right? That's the way it went. It's not that they didn't meet in homes. Obviously, they met in homes. And there was a certain amount of, uh, of, of privacy to it. But uh, there was a lot of public aspect to walking out the Christian faith that, uh, that we only think of in regard to in a certain, certain light. You know, who are we at work or who are we, uh, you know, uh, in certain circumstances. And I think, that, um, I think that getting out in public and worshiping specifically. And this is a movement that's not just uh, unique to us as a church, by the way. This is happening all over the area, uh, all over. It's Colville, uh, over at Sedonia, obviously in Chewila. There's different places that's going on um, all throughout uh, that we're aware of that just... These random, you know, things. Hey, did you hear about this happening? Did you hear about that happening? And it's all that same idea that, that believers uh, get out and uh, publicly proclaim Christ and worship Him. We've been looking at uh, quite, a, do, quite a, a few different biblical examples and, and characters out of the Bible to answer this question. How do we thrive in a decaying culture? If you're here, you were here last week, um, we looked at Nehemiah. Nehemiah was Israel's leader that led the third wave of exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, specifically the walls of Jerusalem. 
And uh, the th- kind of the three points, just in summary and kind of uh, tying things together here, the, last week we looked where we saw where Nehemiah dealt with uh, sin. He dealt with it personally and nationally. Uh, he did a little recon work to see how bad the, uh, the walls really were in Jerusalem. He went by night, it says. Uh, him and just a few guys, and, and uh, he didn't say anything about anything. He just said, hey, we're going to go on a little trip. You know, put on your night vision, guys. We're going to go check this thing out, right? We're going to go look and see how bad Jerusalem really is. And so they, so they get there. They do a little walk around. And after the walk around, that's where he shares his vision, right? That's where he shares what God told him to do. God said, hey, I want you to go rebuild Jerusalem physically. Ezra was working on it spiritually. But I want you to go and rebuild Jerusalem physically. And he shares that vision that God gave him that word that the Lord had shared to Nehemiah, and he had gotten permission from the king uh, in Babylon to go. So he takes just a few guys. So it's a great pattern of how uh, when God tells us something that we need to, it's good to do a little research. It's not questioning God. It's, it's finding out the task. It's good to share it with a few brothers and sisters that can support you. And immediately it says that they says they're in Nehemiah where they, they're like, let's just do it. Like, I think they were ready to start building that night. You know, that's how excited they were. And that's what happens when God gives people some unity of thought and vision on how to go about something. So he did a little recon. Then when tough things got tough, uh, Nehemiah doubled down. He went all in for God's plan to restore Jerusalem. There's a lot of parts to that. He was very strategic about how he went about it. You know, and, and the threats kept coming. The, the, the dissenting voices are always out there in our culture, right? And they were there for Nehemiah. They, they mocked him. They made fun of him. Uh, not just him, but the work that was, that was being done. They made fun of, of Nehemiah. They made fun of the project. They said, this is never going to happen. Uh, and then as it started to happen, then their tone shifts, and they get angry, right? Then they're frustrated, and they're mad about it, but the work kept you know, going on. Like the work just kept happening. And these guys were building the wall. They were all assigned different portions. And the word says that, that they built with a trowel in one hand and a spear in the other. Right? So they were Old Testament open carry I shared last week. Like that was the way they went about their business. That's the way they went about what God told them to do. Right? They were ready but Nehemiah also tells him, in being ready, know this, that God's going to fight for you. Like if something breaks out, like if something happens, fellas, ladies, God's going to be there to fight on your behalf if you're doing what God tells you to do. Isn't that an awesome promise? So they just kept building. They kept doing the, the, the important work, and they left the fighting part up to God. Well, those dissenting voices eventually faded away from dissent and anger to uh, enticement. And the test always comes. It came from Nehemiah where they said, hey, come on out. Come on out to the plains. Let's sit down. Let's have a round. Let's talk about it. Right? That was kind of their idea. Let's, let's, have a, let's drink on a little water here. Let's, let's talk about what's going on. And Nehemiah's like, no way. Like you guys have been opposed to what I've been doing and the enemy's opposed to what you're doing. And so if he can't get you by mockery or by anger, then he's going to get you by enticement. He's going to try to draw you out, draw you out of safety, draw you out of the comfort of, and, and the uh, protection 
that comes with being in the, the city, as it were, out of fellowship, out of community, out of whatever, and try to isolate, pull us out. And it was a trap, and Nehemiah discerned that it was a trap. And he said, sorry, boys, not going to happen, right? I'm doing too much of what God's told me to do to waste my time giving you a second. So he passed on it. So he doubled down. He doubled down several times. Now, I'd mentioned a little bit last week that both Israel and Judah, Israel first, then Judah, were sent into exile. So this is before Nehemiah's coming back, obviously. It goes clear back. Uh, and, um, and they were sent into exile. If you read through Kings and Chronicles, it's a wonderful read. Uh, I can't uh, encourage it enough. But they were sent into exile for their sinful idolatry. They never got over the idolatry issues. Not completely. And we looked at Josiah several weeks ago, and Josiah was one of the two good kings that really dealt with idolatry. But the minute that Josiah died, uh, Judah was right back into idolatry, the word says. And so <clears throat> they were sent into, idolatry, or into exile for their idolatry and their disobedience to God's law. Now the length of their punishment, I only referred to it last of the week, but I thought it would be good to, to give it to you. The length of their punishment was 70 years. And, and how did they arrive? How did, how did God arrive at 70 years? Like, did, I mean, did he just take, you know, a heavenly dart and just, oh, 70, you know. We got the black 70. Uh, no, there was purpose to what he did. The 70 years was determined by the number of Sabbath years that the land of Israel missed out on. See, God had told them, every seven years, you need to give this ground a break, right? It, you get a break. The, the ground gets a break. You get a break. In six, six years, you do all of everything that you got to do. Farming-wise, it was an agrarian culture. You do everything you got to do. And then the seventh year, the ground gets a break. We call it in our profession, summer follow. The ground gets a break. All we do is make sure that the weeds don't get, you know, carried away. Hopefully that's the plan <laughs> anyway, right? But the ground never got a break. They disobeyed God's word. And so for 490 years, divided by seven, 70, that's how you get the 70 years of exile. For 490 years, they disobeyed this one commandment. That's how God gets to that number of 70 years in exile and being judged. Then, of course, as I mentioned last year, we'll just go through it real quick. Then the return of the exiles led by Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And after the return then, so if you can think about several weeks ago, if you can think about kind of that timeline that I'd put up there, and somebody wanted that timeline. I can't remember who it was, but it's, I can print one off. I can print a lot of them off. It doesn't matter, but if you want one. So <clears throat> after they come back in exile and after things are reestablished, and I think I was talking to, Les, you and I were talking about this. There was a real good... Uh, revival that went on in the return like a good holy and and healthy revival that went on they didn't go just from from return to from the exile into where you see in the new testament as far as the jewish leadership am i on in that am i right on that there was a good there was a good healthy and and wholesome return to god that was that was really good and that's what ezra and nehemiah led um and then it kind of flowed out of there but then there was this 400 plus years of silence, and I say silence because God was silent. There was no prophetic word. There was nothing written down. And in that time frame, uh, these, 
I'm going to give you a little bit of background of what else was going on in the world. In that 400 gap, there's, there's these people kind of uh, came to prominence, global thinkers and global leaders, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Buddha, Confucius, Alexander the Great, and of course, uh, who was a Greek, and Julius Caesar. That kind of all sprang up in that 400-year period. So if you wonder, think about kind of just a general timeline. Where do these other voices come in? Where do these other great thinkers that, you know, that are quoted or, you know, that you may learn about in high school or college, where, where do they fit into the biblical picture? That 400 years is where those people uh, really came to prominence. And in also in that time frame... And after that wholesome revival, Israel went from rebuild and repentance. Think of Nehemiah and Ezra. Unfortunately, they went this way. They went from rebuild and repentance to legalism and self-righteousness. And when I say that, I want you to think about, because we're going to read about it today, I want you to think about the the, uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees in the Gospels and how they operated. And there's a lot to unpack there. We're not going to get too deep into all of that. But in a way, I guess my point is is that legalism and self-righteousness is as much a social decay as idolatry. I'll say it again. Legalism and self-righteousness is as much a, a social decay as is the idolatry that they were in. So how does the Lord deal with legalism and self-righteousness then becomes the question. If, that's a, uh, uh, if the general question is how do we thrive in, in a cultural decay, hone that question into then how does the Lord deal with legalism and self-righteousness. Well, Jesus himself dealt with sinners generally in two ways. And the guy that we're going to study today did the same. But Jesus deals with sinners in these two ways. Uh, for those that come to him humbly with honest questions, with a general curiosity and a, and a uh, contrition in their heart. or uh, they, they don't come with any, and he was a master. He was the best at, discover, at discerning whether people were self-righteous from the get-go or not. Right? But those that came humbly, Jesus would lift them up in the sense that, that he met them where they were, and he took them where they were. Right? So in that regard, he lifted those people up. He lifted them up out of the, the, the mire and the, the mud that they were in. I think of the woman at the well. I think of the woman that caught, was caught in adultery. A lot of those stories in the Gospels. Those are all great, and there's many more. Um, those are all examples of where Jesus lifts people up out of sin. The second way that he dealt with sinners was this is that he brings them down. And that's where you need to think of the Pharisees that were constantly trying to trap him, constantly on his heels, constantly trying to deny who he was or, or trying to, to uh, uh, always worried about the crowd and what the crowd thought of either him or them, uh, always trying to trip him up or his disciples up with their extra rules and regulations that they had added on to the Old Testament. Today we're going to look at the guy that literally paved the way for Jesus, John the Baptist. Everything about John the Baptist's life and ministry was tailor-made to deal with the stuffiness of legalism. Everything. 
from just, I mean, just his whole persona, his whole persona was really just a thumb in the eye to legalist. Like, that's, that's literally, uh, and, and I, th- I, don't, I don't think that's, I think it's by design. I think it's how God created him to be, uh, where God led him. Um, a little bio on John the Baptist before we jump into the Bible, and I know I'm on a thin timeline here with the clock to get to the Word. And so a little bio on John the Baptist. Uh, uh, he was a prophet. He was related to Jesus. He was a little rough around the edges, to say the least. Uh, the Word says that he wore camel's hair clothes and uh, was a little scraggly. He grew up in the wilderness, eating bugs and honey. Uh, he was imprisoned and beheaded for proclaiming God's word in a very specific area. We'll get to that at the end. But turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. As Luke chapter 1 gives us this prophetic look at who and what John the Baptist would be. So this is prior to him being born. This is God's prophetic message to his father. In John chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 5. John, or, sorry, Luke chapter 1, we'll start in verse 5, says this, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, and blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. Let's just pause right there and say that um, that's a major, major social issue uh, for that day. Uh, that's as if saying God's curse was upon you if you, if you couldn't uh, conceive, if you couldn't bear children. That God's curse was upon you. And so, uh, <clears throat> footnote that as we go on. Verse 8, so it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Uh, in those days, after, uh, in those days, there was a, a rotation to the duties in the, in the temple. Right? There was a rotation. So uh, different divisions would take different, different uh, turns at it. There was, as it says, this lot fell. In other words, they'd roll the dice and who's going to do this and who's going to do that. And verse 10 says, And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. I would say if you had the angel of the Lord showed up right here, right now, uh, I would be uh, in Zacharias' shoes. I think there would be a little fear falling upon all of us. Verse 13 says, But the angel said to him, he addresses the issue, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have the joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Then here's the description of John that God gives to Zacharias. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Can I stop and say right there, we talked about this, and Les and I just had a private conversation yesterday after men's breakfast. Like, what a statement about 
uh, pro-life. Just a standalone statement about one guy in history, and Jesus has a lot to say about this guy, but what a standalone verse that's pro-life. That God in His, in his uh, complete power can do what He wants, when He wants, with who He wants, and He can fill a preborn infant with Himself. You ever thought about that? You talk about the value of human life? Talk about standing up for those that can't stand up for themselves? Look what, how the Lord Himself, the God creator of the universe, stands up and is going to do something here for John the Baptist and use him in a mighty way. And verse 16 says, and here's a few of the tasks, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he would also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias got quite the download. <laughs> like, can you even fathom that experience? It's, it's, I've, I've read through this I don't know how many times this week. I can't fathom the experience and what just happened. What a download from God about his coming son. There's four descriptions there about John the Baptist. First one is he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He's going to be great in the side, sight of the Lord. He's going to do wonderful things. Now, if you know much of the story about his uh, personality and his makeup and, and how he went about his business, you would say, this guy? Really? Like, he's the, you know, he's the uh, New Testament version of Phil Robertson, right? Walking around barefoot, long hair, beard, doesn't look the part. He doesn't look like Billy Graham, right? He doesn't look like Billy Graham at all. He's not supposed to. That doesn't matter. Descriptions are wide and varied, and God uses all kinds of different people with all kinds of different personalities and giftedness. But he says here about John, he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He's going to be sober-minded. He's going to be sober-minded. And for the task that John had to live out, he needed to be sober-minded. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's going to have the spirit and the power of Elijah. Now, love talking about Elijah, and I really resisted preaching two sermons in one. And you know, it was when I had it all in my notes, I thought, nah, I can't do this. This is like two whole sermons in one sermon. And uh, what have I said before? I've got to think about this. There's a thin line between a long, long sermon and a hostage situation. And um, I didn't want to cross that line. I didn't want to cross that line, and so you can footnote it and hold me accountable. There will be a day that I come back and talk about Elijah. Um, it's incredible. We just actually, not long ago, went through that in our chronological read. But uh, I'll only talk about Elijah in light of John the Baptist. Uh, but Elijah was that man in the Old Testament. And you can look at it in Kings. We're going to look at a couple of verses out of 1 Kings chapter 18. 
Elijah was the man that called Israel to radical repentance. Like if you can look at all of the, all of the characters in the Old Testament, all of the leaders, all the prophets, and, and there was many of them that did this, so I'm not, I'm not discrediting the rest, but Elijah runs to the top of the list of the Old Testament dudes that told Israel, you better get on your face before God. Right? You better get right before the Lord. And we're going to look at those two verses uh, where it kind of, there's a sense of a climax here. In 1 Kings 18, uh, he says this. 1 Kings 18, verse 20. So Ahab, the king of Israel, sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter? Between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered not a word. It's not a good time to not say anything if you were Israel. Right? And here's the little backdrop, the story for this. Is that after this event, there becomes this massive showdown between the prophets of Baal and, and Elijah. And, and man, I really want to just go there. Because it's a crazy story, and it's an awesome story, and God shows up in an amazing way. But in this moment, before all of that, Elijah comes to the people and says, Hey, how long are you going to falter between two opinions? If you look that word up, it's the same word as dance. How long are you going to dance between, between two opinions? Are you going to be with Baal? Are you going to be with the Lord your God? Are you going to da- keep dancing back and forth, shuffling one foot to the other? Like, how long are you going to do that? Pick one and serve them. That's, that's a call to radical repentance for Israel. And it's a call to radical repentance for the church today, too. Like, we have to choose moment by moment, day by day, temptation by temptation. Which way are we going to go? And the more you falter, the more... Look, listen, here's what it is. I'm not a great dancer, so I'll admit that. So this is only advice by observation only. But I'm get, and there's a few of us that have taken dance lessons in here that could probably demonstrate it or, or explain it better than I could for sure. Because when I get out and dance, I could be pretty careful that somebody doesn't end up with purple toes, right? Here's the thing about dancing, faltering between two opinions. Here's the thing about dancing. The way that you get good at it is you do it a lot. And Israel had been really, really, really good at faltering between two opinions. Do we keep worshiping these other gods, or do we worship the Lord, or do we do both and think that that's okay? See, their issue, and this is pre-exile, their issue was they kept stacking the deck with these other gods. They had the Lord God, their creator, they had the tabernacle, they had it all. But they kept stacking the deck with the Baals, with the Asherah poles, right? With the, uh, with the Moloch, you know, worshiping their, the, and, and sacrificing their kids to Moloch. They were kept trying to stack the deck. And here's what it is, and we talked a little bit about it yesterday morning. You know what it is? It's an issue of dependency. They were faltering between dependency on God or all of these other idols. It's an issue of dependency. And here's the answer, and here's where, where uh, Elijah draws them. He draws them to radical repentance. 
by essentially, essentially saying this, are you just going to depend on God or are you going to depend on Baal? Whatever you're going to do, like go for it, do it, you do you, right? But just make a choice. And they wouldn't make a choice. They wouldn't even make a sound. And John the Baptist had that same type of style where he was straight to the point. He would call the people to make a choice on who they were going to worship. That's what he was sent to do. That's that spirit and power of Elijah. He also had, uh, so he had four descriptions. He also had four assignments in this passage here out of Luke chapter 1. One of the things that the angel tells his father, Zacharias, is that this little guy that's going to grow up and be this crazy long-haired, camel-wearing, bug-eating preacher, he's going to turn hearts to God. Number one assignment that John the Baptist had was to turn hearts to the Lord. Not only is he going to turn hearts to God, but he's going to turn hearts of the fathers back to the children. And that's a quote out of Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, which actually, as it pans out, is the last two verses in the Old Testament. That's God's, God's last words in the Old Testament. Is this guy's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. And I think if there's a social decay that is not being addressed in our day and age, this, to me, stands number one on the list. This is the number one thing that nobody is really, really uh, talking about. And we try to put that dependency on politicians, or we try to put that dependency on all these other areas, rather than saying, hey, I need to deal with my stuff as a dad. I need to be a, to, a father to my kids. And when and where I can, I need to reach out and be a father to other kids and have influence in that way. Now you know why I coach football. A little data on fatherlessness. An estimated 20, nearly 25 million, 24.7 million children, 33%, live absent their biological father. 2010 stats, so that's 12 years old. Of students in grade 1 through 12, 39%, or 17.7 million, live in homes absent their biological fathers. 57.6% of black children, 31.2% of Hispanic children, 20.7% of, 20 of white children are living absent their biological fathers. According to 72.2% of the U.S. population, fatherlessness is the most significant family or social problem facing America. These stats are all like at least a, a dozen years old. Like you can't tell me in a dozen years it's gotten better. No way. Not at all. This is a big part, a big part of where God's heart is. Is for fathers, for the fathers' hearts to be turned back to the children. Now, you may think that it's all about the kids. I give you stats about the kids. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not convinced that it's all about just the children. It is, in a sense, 
It, it, it is in a sense. But as I've said many times, God has a, a generational view, right? So where, where you men are engaged, teaching and training your kids, leading them uh, to understand who God is, teaching them the Bible, sharing Christ with them, where you're doing that, you're setting up your kids spiritually, not just for the next generation, but for generations to come. You're setting a pattern. Where that's not happening, the pattern's just reversed. And so in a sense, it is about the kids, but in a sense, it's, it's, it's about, <clears throat> all right, we'll put it this way. It is about the kids in a sense, but it's also about future parents. Like how you teach and train your kids is going to determine largely how they turn out as future parents. And how they teach and train their kids is going to determine how your grandkids are going to parent your great-grandkids. And it just goes one after the next and after the next and after the next. So in a lot of ways it is about the kids. But in a lot of ways it's simply about calling out the dads and saying, hey, you, you got to handle your stuff. You've got to do what God's created you to do. You've got to be the man that God has created you to be, and that's going to have a downstream effect, positively or negatively, on future generations. Father's hearts are the ones that are astray here in this verse. The hearts of the fathers need to be turned back to the children. We live in a culture that wants men's hearts in every other direction than our own dinner tables. We live in a culture that, that, that just makes it easy, dudes, for all of us to just do whatever we want to do, right? And chase whatever dream or whatever thing that's out there, whatever escape that makes us feel good. It makes it, we live in a culture that makes it real easy for us men to be apathetic to not handle and, and, and to not engage, to not lead our families as we should. John the Baptist specifically was one of the guys that, that God was going to send into the great scheme of things to stop that virus, to stop that sin, to address that sin that's in every culture of every time. So it's not, we're, this isn't unique to us, not at all. Every culture had this issue. Every time frame had this issue. The third thing is, is to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Simple statement of turning hearts back into God's wisdom. Back into the wisdom that Jesus would bring. And the fourth thing there, the fourth assignment that John the Baptist had which was, kind of summarizes all of the rest of them, is to make a people ready for the Lord. That's a quote out of Isaiah chapter 40. But make, people, make a people ready for the Lord. He was, uh, was going to set the table. He was going to set the table for what was happening. Now let's take a little self-inventory while we're thinking about these things. And only you can answer this question for you. Are you actively engaging? I'll answer it for myself or think about it for myself. Am I actively engaged and promoting these biblical principles? These are biblical principles. I know that John the Baptist had a very specific assignment, 
But these are basic biblical principles that, that are at the very heart of God's calling out to his people. Right? Are you actively engaged in promoting these biblical principles? We all have a role to play in helping one another be ready for the Lord. So it's not just me here to help you, and, and that's true in this sense, but all of us as a church have an active role at some level and in some way helping one another, uh, in a sense, and I use the quotations, be ready for the Lord. How did John deal with the stuffy self-righteous? I asked that question earlier. That was all a um, setup to get to Matthew chapter 3, Luke chapter 1. Now, Matthew chapter 3. <coughs> John's grown, and I'll give you a little backdrop. John's grown and well on his way in ministry. Matthew chapter 3, we'll read 12 verses, says this, Matthew 3, 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. <clears throat> for this, he, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, see, saying, here's Isaiah 40, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. I find that intriguing as a hardcore carnivore. Um, locusts and wild honey doesn't seem that appealing, but it'll get you by. Verse 5 says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around Jordan went out to him, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So first of all, there in verse 2, there's a, his message is, is to repent. His message is to repent. Like that's the number one message. That's all, like his sermons were not that long. Just repent. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Sing a song, right? Like that was his message. There's a lot to it. But that was the message. The call to repentance is an important message. And must not be neglected. It is entirely accurate to say this is the first word of the gospel. I will go down a little list of research that I did. Uh, the word repent was the first word of John the Baptist's gospel. We just read that, Matthew 1. Repent was the first word of Jesus' gospel. You can see that in Matthew chapter 4, 17 and Mark 1, 14 through 15. Repent was the first word in the preaching Ministry of the Twelve Disciples. You can pick that up in Mark chapter 6, verse 12. The idea of repentance. Repent was the first word in the preaching instructions that Jesus gave his disciples after his resurrection, Luke 24, 46 and 47. Repent was the first word of exhortation in the first Christian sermon. See that in Acts 2, Peter's words. And repent was the first word in the mouth of the Apostle Paul through his ministry. You can see that way back in Acts 26, 19 through 20. Repentance is a huge thing. Like the message of repentance. And, and repentance is simply this way. I'm walking this way. I stop. I'm convicted of my sin. 
I cry out to God and I confess my sin and I turn and I just walk. The, that's what repentance looks like. I just start walking the other way. And those of you who've trusted Christ as your Savior, that's your story, right? And I'm not going to say that there's not some ebbs and flows. There was for me. I'm not going to say there isn't some highs and lows. There was for me. I'm not going to say that, that, that from that point forward that I, that I never, you know, uh, sinned after that. That's true of me. I'm sure that we can all say it's true of each one of us. But the idea is, is that I've turned and now I'm going another way. I'm going a different way than I used to go. The result of preaching repentance says right there, verse 5, that sins are confessed and people were proclaiming their allegiance to Christ. That's the result when repentance is preached, right? That's the result. That's what God does in the hearts of people that are tuned into Him. That's what God does for those that are, that are looking, that are searching, that, that He's been working on through the power of His Holy Spirit, is that when repentance, when they get the word of repentance, and you know it's true for you, I know it's true for me, when I got that word from the Lord that I needed to change the direction of my life before I ended up in a casket, I started going a different direction. You started going a different direction. The natural and organic outflow of repentance is that sins are confessed and there's a fresh and new proclamation and allegiance to Christ. That's the idea of confessing their sins. They were baptizing, getting baptized by John in the Jordan. Now it goes on to say, verse 7, Still haven't got to these stuffy, self-righteous dudes, but here we go. This is my favorite part. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to rise up, raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That last phrase we talked a little bit about yesterday. But let's go through these few verses. And I want to say this is that uh, before we get there, is that uh, <clears throat> your repentance, if you've been taught that your repentance is a one-time thing, and that was like way back, you know, whenever you were 15 at summer camp and threw a stick in the fire, and like that's all there is to it, right? You've got the wrong view. I'm just going to tell you that outright. Just... To just take that idea, not that that event wasn't important. I'm going to tell you, that event was important for sure. But if you're relying upon that, right, and that's it, I think you have the wrong view of repentance. And here's why I say, repentance is a lifestyle. Your repentance, your true turning, is not just a one-time thing, and then back away we go, back to the original direction. No, when you turn, you go a different direction. Your repentance, my repentance, right? My coming to grips with, with who I am and how far short I fall 
from God's standard of perfection, sinlessness, and my need for Jesus in that moment, because he's the only one that hit the bullseye, right? He's the only one that lived sinlessly and died for my sins and died for your sins, right? That type of, uh, and, and receiving that, I'll just go ahead and give you the gospel, and receiving that, trusting in Christ, he paid my penalty, he paid your penalty for sin. And coming into the family of Christ, becoming a new believer, that leads you, that leads me to a lifestyle of being repentant. Not a one-time thing. There's a lot of, let's be honest, folks, there's a lot of false conversions out there. And I might be stepping on a few toes, I don't know, it don't really matter, right? Because here's why I say that. There's a lot of people that think back to when they were 14, when they were the ones that, you know, raised their hand, or they're the ones that threw a stick in the fire, but their life has not reflected from 14 to 54 that they're actually a Christ follower. But they're leaning on that. And I can't calculate, I, can, I cannot square that in my mind. I don't believe it's a real conversion. And I know that's sticky. And I'm probably pushing a few buttons. Life, repentance, confession of sin and repentance is a lifestyle. You're repenting from there forward, right? Read the book of Philemon if you want a longer explanation of what I'm talking about. So what does repentance look like? Right here in this, in this Matthew piece on John the Baptist, here's what repentance looks like. He gets on these guys because of their stuffy self-righteousness. They were leaning on their own good works. By this time, the uh, true and right revival that had happened in the times of Ezra and Nehemiah and shortly after that had kind of faded in the sense that that in came this whole system of adding all of these rules, regulations to the Old Testament law. And these, that's why I say these guys were self-righteous, legalist, like they were really honed in on those more than the original. And, uh, and they were coming down harsh on everybody that didn't believe as they did. What does repentance look like? Repentance looks this way, is there's an awareness of the coming wrath of God. Look at verse 7. There's an awareness of the coming wrath of God. We don't talk about wrath anymore that much as a church. Like, we want everybody to feel real comfortable in their seats, right? We, we want to make sure that you come back next week. Uh, we don't talk about the coming wrath of God. Oh, it's coming, right? Like, there's no mistake. Don't get lulled to sleep by our society. Don't get lulled to sleep by those that doubt or twist or turn the the word of God and, 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 you know, deny that wrath of God that's coming. It's coming. And true repentance, one of the indicators, the descriptions of true repentance, is there's an awareness and an understanding and a desire to know more. How is this going to play out? There's awareness of the coming wrath of God. The second description is, is that we bear fruit that's consistent with the changes. That's my example with the person that, that, that makes a confession, but then there's no life lived out. 
What I'm saying there is, and it comes right here from verse 8, there's no fruit on the vine over the course of our lives that demonstrates that we are who we think we are. A tree will naturally bear fruit. That's just the way that God created them. We got a couple apple trees and a pear tree in our yard. We have over the, oh wow, that poor pear tree, we beat the snot out of this pear tree. We've butched that thing down to where it looked like just a stick sticking out of the ground. Guess what? It keeps putting on pears, right? That's just what it does. That's just who God created it to be, a pear tree. And I'll tell you what, the apple tree is like 12 feet away, and I can't get those two trees to switch fruit. They just won't do it. Because the, pear, the apple tree is way bigger, and I really like pears. So I'm thinking if the, if the pear tree was as big as the apple tree, we'd have a lot more pears, and um, this bear would be happy during the winter. We bear fruit that's consistent with the changes that God has made in our lives. The changes that we, that we see the Holy Spirit doing. The changes that come through repentance and confessing of sin. Repentance also looks like this. It looks, it's we stop relying on somebody else's righteousness. True repentance stops relying upon somebody else's righteousness, or even our own, you could say. But verse 9, John the Baptist had no problem getting in these guys' faces and saying, hey, don't go back to Abraham with this thing. I know where you're going. I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, oh, but we're the children of Abraham. And what was happening in that moment was is they're just relying upon Abraham's you know, faithfulness. They're relying upon you know, Abraham's righteousness. Oh, no, we can't do that. Not at all. Kids, don't rely upon your parents' faith in the Lord. God's got no grandkids, right? You guys have to make that choice yourself. You've got to understand that God's calling you. The next one is as we get the idea of just really how big Jesus is, verse 11. How awesome Jesus is. Then, of course, we receive the Holy Spirit. And then we're tested by fire. That's what repentance looks like. There's always a test. I've said that for the last several sermons now. There's always that test. The fire, being baptized by the fire, is a sense, is the, the, the burning away in our lives of all those things that aren't really important. So you do your own inventory. What's really important? Right? Those of us that have been uh, unfortunate enough or, or have had the experience of dealing with a, a fire, you know in the moment, like, this is not going to... I've showed up to dozens and dozens of house fires, right? And uh, you, there, there is a sense of panic that sets in. It's like, oh, no, I'm losing everything. You know, what are the, like, five things... How many times do we see that, like in the fire scene? You know, people are coming out with just armloads of, uh, uh, of stuff that that is their most important things that they got to get out of there. Fire has a way of doing that. It burns away everything that's not important. It's a testing. Now, Matthew goes on to say, verse 12, 
Matthew goes on to record John the Baptist. Uh, there's a little analogy that he throws in there, and I'd be a real bad farmer if I didn't talk about it. Says this, verse 12, his winnowing, speaking of the Lord, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's kind of the analogy that is laid out there. <clears throat> I actually thought about showing a little three-minute video, but for the sake of time uh, and Haley, the fact that Haley doesn't have it on the computer. Um, but uh, I was looking at, uh, you can look at basically grain going through a combine, side view, it's crazy. Like, those of us that are farmers kind of get this. We kind of geek out on this kind of stuff. But, like, it's a violent occurrence. That's what I want to say. You think, you put yourself in this, in this spot. If you're that one kernel of wheat, just, that, just think of yourself as one kernel of wheat in a field of 100 acres, and here comes the combine, you know, and uh, from the moment that that combine touches the stock, it's just, if you're one kernel of wheat, it's violent. Wouldn't you say it's violent? You fish. Ed's my go-to farmer over here. He's forgot more about farming than I'll ever know. But uh, it's a violent occurrence. It, it's, it really is. And I don't know if I have time. I can tell you the grossest story. Anybody want a gross story? Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, how violent is it? That's your question. How violent is it? When I was a teenager, we were combining barley. And... Uh, and the combine got plugged up, which happens often. And, uh, but it didn't get plugged up because there was too many weeds or because my dad was going too fast. My wife shaking her head said, please don't tell the story. The combine got plugged up because my grandma's favorite cat had crawled inside of it. Eh. It's a violent occurrence. Sorry, Dennis, I know you didn't like that idea. Being threshed out by the Lord. Let's get back to the Bible. Right? I know I, I've really planted some seeds there in a few kids' minds. Like Parents are like, come on, man, really? Like We didn't come to hear that. When the Lord is threshing you out, because God is in the process of sifting His people. That's what verse 12 is all about. God is in the process of sifting His people. He's threshing. He wants to know whose grain, whose chaff. What's real, what's fake. Right? What's going to make it through and into the bin? And what's going out the back? That's the process of a combine, right? It really boils down to two categories. And we see that all through the Bible, really. Because uh, <clears throat> in the end, it all boils down to, to two camps. Those who trust in Christ and those that don't. And so the combine analogy really plays out quite well into the big scheme of how things will go in the future. The thing is, is that John endured that sifting even himself. The worship team wants to come back up. Daniel and the rest will land this thing hopefully. John endured that sifting himself. That was his message for sure. That was his word of preaching was to repent, that God was going to do these things for his people that, and that, that there will be a sifting 
of who's truly there. That's how you deal with those that are stuffy and self-righteous. They needed sifting. But John even endured a sense of sifting himself. And I'm only going to footnote this. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 11. And I'll give you the quick lowdown. By the time you get to Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist has been imprisoned. Why was he imprisoned? Like, wasn't he one of the good guys? Wasn't he, you know, wasn't he God's chosen guy to prepare the way for Jesus? Absolutely. But by the time you get to Matthew chapter 11, he's sitting in the cell and he's wondering, man, is Jesus really the one? Why was he in jail, you may ask? Here's why he was in jail. It's because he called out uh, ungodly marriage. That was a tough word. And he endured the sifting that came with that. King Agrippa had taken his uh, brother's wife, just away they go. And John the Baptist says, hey, that ain't right. I don't care who you are, that ain't right. You're getting Mark's paraphrased version. And so he calls him out. It's embarrassing to them. Uh, She wants revenge. And so she leans on the king to exact that revenge. And her request is she wants John the Baptist's head on a platter. So he, that's exactly how it happened. John the Baptist gave up his life preaching what was right and true. John the Baptist gave up his life. He endured his own sense of sifting for the sake of what was right and true. So here's what's interesting as we land the plane and the whole thing. John the Baptist really sits in two camps and two categories because he's really the last Old Testament prophet, but he's also the first New Testament martyr. And he ended up with that because that's who God created him to be. That's who God called him to be. And he called him to step up and say what's right in a culture that went sideways. And that's what landed him in the martyrdom camp. This is my opinion. But I believe that it's true. He's both Old Testament prophet, the last of the prophets, and the first of the martyrs. Let's stand and worship the Lord. I just encourage you, go back through and read Matthew 11. You'll see what I'm talking about right here at the end.